0: Well, friends, we come now to the 23rd chapter of Matthew's Gospel. It's the 23rd talk on this, and the title is The Sorrow That Awaits. Let me lead us in prayer. We ask our Heavenly Father now that you would speak to us as we look at your word, the Bible, and that by your Spirit you would help us to understand how you work in this world and how we should respond. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's heartbreaking when we see leaders who let down their people. We see it in politics. We see it in business. And we see it in the church. In the last week, I've read of three different situations where a church leader has let down his people. It's heartbreaking to watch the followers of those leaders weep with, with sadness and with, with disappointment. They expect their leaders to do what is right. But sadly, they don't. And when I see them fall, I see my own sin afresh. And I'm reminded of how many ways I could fail as a leader and how many times the Lord has saved me from failing. And again, I recall the words of Jesus' brother in James chapter 3. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. The Lord raises up teachers in the church, But when we fail, it brings heartache and damage. So would you please join with me in praying. We need to keep praying for our church leaders. And we need to pray for all who follow them. That the Lord would protect us when our leaders fall and fail. Today in our next chapter from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about leaders in particular he talks to the religious leaders who led God's people at the time when he walked on earth they only had the Old Testament but if they knew it well they would be looking for God's long expected leader and that's why Jesus speaks to them at the Sermon on the Mount he taught them that he himself is the leader that they've been waiting for But sadly, many of them didn't recognise him as their long-awaited leader and saviour. And even worse than that, these leaders wanted Jesus to stop preaching. And they were prepared to do anything to stop him. Anything. Those are the leaders that Jesus is speaking about in today's chapter from Matthew. It's a specific message to a specific people at a specific time. But what Jesus says to those leaders then is still relevant to us today. For the mistakes that those leaders make are still made today. But the biggest problem is that those mistakes will lead people away from Jesus. Mistakes by leaders will lead people from Jesus. And so we turn to Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. He recognises the special responsibilities of these special teachers of the Bible, but he tells the people, don't follow them. Verse 3, he says, practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. Jesus wants them to obey the Bible of course but he doesn't want them to follow the example of those Bible teachers. He sees a disconnection between what the Bible says and what those leaders are doing. We see this today when a leader teaches purity but ends up in moral failure. But the problem that Jesus confronts it's almost the other way round funnily enough. Verse 4, he says, They crush people with unbearable religious demands and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. What these leaders are doing is they're making it really, really hard to follow God. They're making all sorts of rules that aren't even in the Bible. And then they try and make God's people to do them. And it crushes them. It's like when you see other people doing the right thing, but you keep failing. And they, so, they, they seem to be so um, you know, holy and, and godly and nice. But I know deep inside myself that I still feel anger and lust and envy. And that makes you feel guilty and full of failure. It can crush us when we fail, can't it? And this is where the leaders should bring the comfort of Grace. But they're not doing it. These leaders are not doing this. They never lift a finger to ease the burden. They're kind of like a personal trainer who makes you feel so crushed that you never ever go back to the gym. They're bad leaders. And Jesus says, don't follow their example. And then he exposes their false teaching. Verse 5. Everything they do is for show. On their arms... They wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra long tassels. These leaders just want to show off. That's all they want to do. They want others to say, Whoa, they're so godly. They're so spiritual. They're so holy. And so they make all these religious power moves. When I was a teenage Christian i knew that if i wanted to impress others i'd carry around a big chunky niv study bible it was the full version right it was hardback it was biblical brick and if you wanted to go to the next level you buy a fancy bible cover too and in it, you'd make sure you had all of the, the name tags that you have been in all the conferences, and you'd have the prayer notes, and you'd have all the, all the sermon notes stuffed in there. You almost need two hands to lift it, and you're thinking, you know, if I carry this around, people will go, whoa, super spiritual. Now, if you've got a Bible like that, and it's full of, good on you, that's great. I don't want to discourage you in any way. But if you're just doing that, if you're saying, I want the biggest Bible we can get, you know, and you're carrying it around, you're sort of like needing a small crane to be able to lift it, uh, if you're just doing it for show, you're missing the point. If you're doing it because you want to grow in the Bible, yeah, go ahead and do that. That's awesome. But this is the kind of thing that these leaders are doing, Right? Uh, they've read these verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6, really good verses. It says, You must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're on when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. All those things are good. And so what did they do? They made huge wrist Bible boxes to show it off. They're not just a little one. They were kind of like massively big. You could sort of see them turning up to youth group. Man, how big is your Bible box? It's huge. You know, it's kind of like they're around, they're showing off. That's what they're all on about. And it wasn't just there. They came up with all sorts of other ways to show off as well. Verses 6 and 7. They love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honour in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called, oh, Rabbi. That's what they want. They want it all to be about them. The leaders just want to show off. I mean, I reckon they're the kind of people who, if they live today, would be all over social media, wouldn't they? All the time. Now, some people need to be visible on social media for their job. If you're an influencer, you need to be there, you know, Byron Bay, whatever. Uh, If you have an online shop, you want more followers, you know, and more likes so you can get more customers, you know. And if you're a politician, probably it's inevitable. You have to take selfies every single time you go and hand out a big, huge check for a grant or, you know, cut a ribbon to open up new toilets or whatever it is that you do. You've got to do that kind of thing. That's sort of just the politician sort of thing. But if there was ever an occupation that should be careful with the narcissism of social media, it's got to be those who teach God's Word. Now, I'm not saying that church leaders shouldn't post on Facebook. It's a powerful tool. But it mustn't be for show. And that also extends to fancy outfits and fancy names, verses 8 to 10. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, For you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. Now, you read that literally, you think, oh, how's that going to work? But the thing is that clearly Jesus doesn't mean you should never ever call anyone teacher or father or rabbi, because throughout the new testament we see it happening and it's fine and in fact you get to the epistles and there's people talking about teachers and i even quoted from it earlier on from james chapter 3 the point is that we that leaders must not be leading for their own glory that's what jesus is saying here it's not about them it's not about self promotion because verse 11 the greatest amongst you must be a servant it's about being a servant about being a slave. That is what leadership's about. It's about servant leadership, about being a servant. For he says in the next verse, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, when pastors are self-promoting, it's a big problem, isn't it? It's always weird when a minister turns up and hands out his or her resume about all the stuff that they've done. It's kind of like, well, you're going for a job and you've got to do it, but I mean, what do you put in there? You know, look what I did. Look at how the church grew under my leadership. You know, Look at how the giving grew. Look at the renovations and extensions. Look at how many books I sold. Look at how many views I got on YouTube. It's like, oh, it just doesn't seem right. Because the bigger that these leaders make themselves look, the smaller that they make Jesus appear. It's a bad look. And with this in mind, Jesus tells these false leaders about the sorrow that awaits them. In the next few verses, seven times Jesus is going to say the phrase, what sorrow awaits you? Seven times he's going to pronounce judgment on them. And it starts at verse 13. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. False teaching has shut people out of heaven. It's shut the door in the faces of other people. They have made the bar so high that people can't climb over it. And it also means it's actually, ironically, too high for them to even climb over. And so for this, sorrow awaits these false teachers. That's number one. Number two. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you cross land and sea to make one convert And then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. They're going out of their way not to convert people to the Bible. They're actually converting them to their false understanding of the Bible, the Pharisaical way. And when they've been able to convert somebody across to this legalistic way of understanding God, then what do they do? If they're successful, they make that person twice a child of hell that they are. That's Jesus' way of putting it. Jesus is angry at these teachers, and rightly so. And that is because false teaching can injure others. That's what's happening here. It's injuring other people. And so Jesus calls it out. Two down. Here comes number three. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools. What's more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding. How blind. For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you're swearing by it and everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you're swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. What are they doing wrong? Well, I think it's a little bit like how people will cross their fingers behind their back when they make a promise that they're planning to break. You know, it's kind of like you cross your fingers, but you don't do this at home, but you know, know, other people do. You sort of say, oh yeah, I promise I won't tell anybody that juicy piece of news you've just told me. Mm. And because, fingers crossed, you think, oh, the promise doesn't really stand. They are working out ways that they can have special exceptions to break rules so they don't look like they're breaking them. These false teachers make exceptions to rules. You know, it's okay to, to swear by the altar, but not to swear by the gifts on the altar, and so forth. But the bigger problem is, it seems that they don't even believe that God is really alive in heaven, on this throne. God is real. He's sitting on his throne and anyone who ignores him through the pursuit of false rituals will have horrible sorrow awaiting them. This is what Jesus is saying. We come to number four. The fourth pronouncement of judgment. Verse 23 to 24. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens but you ignore the more important aspects of the law justice, mercy and faith you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat but you swallow a camel <laughs> you see, Jesus is attacking their legalistic view of tithing Tithing is a ritual where people give one-tenth of their income to God. It's a practice from the Old Testament that they're following here. And they get so tied up in this law that they're even tithing their herbs. They go to their basil plant. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And I'll bring that one, number ten, and along to church with me. Really? See, we see here, right here, that they are acting as though if they do this, they will be all self-righteous and super-spiritual. But they've gone crazy on the ritual, but ignored what really matters to God. Justice, mercy, and faith. They claim to know God, but they live like they have never met him. False teachers act like they haven't met Jesus. False teachers act like they haven't met Jesus. As Peter Bolt says in his terrific commentary, he says this, In a strange twist of fate, if they had known about mercy, then they would have known God and wouldn't have rejected their Messiah who had come to bring in mercy. It's just so tragic. So near, yet so far. Then we get on to the fifth of seven words of judgment. Verse 25 and 26. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First watch the inside of the cup and the dish and then the outside will become clean Two, they are so fussed about external cleanliness. If these guys lived now, this time of hand washing and hand sanitizers and so on, you kind of see how they'd fit in pretty well. And in fact, if COVID rules were like religious rules, these guys would be so sanitized that they'd be saints. But the cleanliness rules... Jesus says they don't ultimately matter because their hearts are filthy. These false teachers get religiously clean but remain unholy. They follow these holiness laws but they don't live holy lives. And so judgment awaits them. Second last one, verse 27. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. On the outside, they look all holy and spiritual, like beautifully maintained graves in a cemetery. Beautifully done, looked after, perfectly manicured. But on the inside they're impure. They don't personally know God. They only know rules and laws. And all that's inside them is hypocrisy and lawlessness. These false teachers, fake purity. They are fakes. Which gets us to the last of the seven pronouncements of judgment by Jesus. Verse 29. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. And then you say, oh, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes. Sons of vipers. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Jesus is not mentioning his words. He's firing there with with two barrels. Because the hypocrisy is just... It just stinks. Here are these religious rulers. They are treating the Old Testament prophets like they're heroes, right? Isaiah, yeah, what a guy. Jeremiah, legend. But if these very people were alive back then at the time of Isaiah or Jeremiah... They would have been the ones that murdered the prophets in the first place. These false teachers hate God's prophetic word. And that's why they were pleased to see the death of John the Baptist. And why they are plotting to see the death of Jesus. That's why, that's what will finish what their evil ancestors started. And that's why they are snakes who will not escape the judgment of hell. Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. He left heaven to come to earth so that we could escape hell. And these corrupt, evil religious leaders are going to kill the author of life. And now, having pronounced these seven words of judgment, Jesus explains what's going to happen to them next. Verse 34, he says, I'm sending you therefore prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion and you will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. And as a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel To the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth. This judgment will fall on this very generation. He says to them, you guys are about to make the ultimate mistake. You've killed prophets in the past, and now you are about to kill God's own son. And the judgment for killing the Messiah will fall on that very generation. The generation that rejected Jesus will experience this judgment. Killing Jesus will bring judgment on this generation. It's just its so utterly tragic to be that close to the Messiah, the real Messiah, hearing him, watching him, having him pan around the crowd and at one stage maybe even connecting his eyes with yours. And what do they do? They plot his death. It's just tragic. It's beyond imagination. And I wonder how it makes you feel as you consider that. And how would it make Jesus feel? What would he be feeling at that stage? He's unleashed seven judgments on those false teachers. And we know he's only days away from his death. How will he respond? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. They're familiar words, but they're just they're overwhelming when you see the context of all those woes that he's just pronounced and the reality of what he is staring in the face. And he says, "I have wanted to gather you as a hen protects her chicks. It's beautiful love. It's beautiful compassion. And it's love and compassion for those who want him killed. It's love for those who have rejected him. And because of their rejection, their days are numbered. God promised to build his house, which would be ruled by his Messiah. But now they have rejected him. And this is what will happen to the house, to the dynasty, verse 38. And look, Jesus says, your house is abandoned and desolate. And their rejection of Jesus will be complete until there are those that will accept their king as they should. Final verse. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The leaders of God's people have rejected God's king. Their job was to know and tell the good news of God. But all they did was close off the kingdom and then kill the king. They are the worst leaders you can imagine. No wonder Jesus speaks seven pronouncements of judgment to them. No wonder he speaks about the sorrow that awaits them. Because they've rejected the Messiah and they've blocked others from knowing him. There's nothing worse that a Christian leader can do than lead someone away from Christ. There's no worse way to let people down than to lead them from Jesus. If you are a person in Christian leadership, then you need to take this warning very, very seriously. If you're a teacher of God's people, remember, we will be judged more harshly. Teachers of God's people will be judged more harshly. And that's because our words and our actions can unlock the kingdom of heaven. Or they can throw the door to heaven closed in their face. All this shows the enormous importance of following Jesus. You know, it's not a nice philosophy. It's not a helpful way of seeing the world. It's a matter of life and death. If you don't know Jesus then you will join these false teachers in hell. Jesus wasn't exaggerating. Jesus wasn't deceiving. And so if you reject his words you will live with tragic and eternal consequences. but because Jesus is right he alone offers us salvation he alone offers us hope so come to him all you who are weak and carry heavy burdens and he will give you We got to see.